On today's episode of the SSPX Podcast, we'll continue our apologetic series by looking at the Old Testament. In our last episode, we saw that revelation from God is necessary. Now, we'll begin to look at one of the main ways we know about revelation, through Scripture. But can we trust Scripture? How do we know that the Bible is true, much less divinely inspired? Can we really trust that this collection of books from hundreds, thousands of years ago is accurate? And how are we supposed to interpret it? You can find notes to all of these episodes at sspxpodcast.com slash apologetics, as well as all our previous episodes. There as well, you can find a link to help support this project. This is free to listen to, as well as all the resources that we're posting. But if you can help with a one-time or a small monthly recurring donation, you'll be making sure that we can continue this work of producing good Catholic content on a regular basis. Now, let's join Father Reuter for episode number seven of our Apologetics series. Welcome to our next episode on our Apologetics series. Father Reuter, how are you? I'm well, Andrew. How are you? I'm doing fine, thank you. I'm excited to uh, dive into a little bit of biblical studies with you. Um, biblical studies, from what I understand, just before we get started, it is it is an entirely different subject matter, and and it's a fascinating one that I haven't spent a lot of time on. Uh, is it something that's always interested you? I'm, I'm wondering if if you chose to do this episode or if you were asked to do this one or? I was asked to do it, but I was very happy to do it because it is a fascinating topic. And the more you study to the the more fascinating it becomes, in fact. So I was asked and happy to do it. Fantastic. Well, thank you for doing it. We're going to be talking uh, a little bit more um, as we go on, I think episode 20, 22, somewhere around there, 10 to 15 episodes from now, we're going to be talking with Father Luke more about the sources of revelation and mm-hmm. you know the, uh, some biblical studies there. But we're going to be looking yeah. mostly at the Old Testament with you today. Is that correct? Yes. We'll be considering the Bible and primarily the Old Testament and what is its basis for credibility. Okay. So that's so, the topic we'll be considering. So I guess we'll start there. What is the Bible and what do you mean when you say, Father, the, the basis for credibility? Well, as with all disciplines, we, we need to consider the, the terms that are being used. And the two terms here, of course, is what is the Bible and then what is credibility. The word Bible comes to us from the Greek to the Latin as a biblia, and that's plural for books. So the word Bible means books in the plural. And the reason for this is because under one cover, we have many books. And these books were composed by various sacred authors, beginning with Moses and ending with St. John the Apostle. And this book, which contains many books, is divided into two main parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Something I've actually never thought of asking before. Um, what does Testament mean? Uh, we grow up hearing Old Testament, New Testament, exactly. we just accept that that's what it is. But what, what do we mean by Testament? In this context, as in most contexts, the word Testament signifies a covenant, some some document. And in this particular context, it's the covenant between God and man. So one speaks of the Old Testament in relation to the New and the Eternal Testament. So we always speak of the two as related one to another. The Old Testament was the pact or covenant which God entered with Abraham and then his descendants, the people of Israel. It begins with him calling Abraham to become the father of all who would believe the father and faith of all mankind. And the sign of this testament was circumcision, by which the Jews expressed their faith that Christ would come from their offspring. And this covenant, which was entered with Abraham, became more explicit with Moses, the Mosaic law, and it reaches its completion and is superseded with Christ Christ who initiates the new and the eternal covenant of his blood. And we'll develop this idea of covenant in the next podcast, which we do on salvation history. Okay. So then that's the Bible. That is the Testament. 
um, credibility. Uh, basically, that means it's it's believable. Is that what you mean? Exactly. Correct. Okay. So is this book, the Bible, are these books that, which are contained in the Bible, are they worthy of belief? And here we're speaking of on the natural level. So we're concerned with the evidence used to judge the credibility of any ancient book or any ancient manuscript. So as with all ancient books, you need to look at the manuscripts and establish if the documents which we have today in our hands correspond to the originals. And the originals are usually referred to as autographs. That's the first step. Is the book which I have in front of me, which claims to be authored by this person, does it correspond in its substance to the autograph, the original, which was written by that person? And then beyond the manuscript evidence, you also need to look at the internal evidence, so the contents of the book, and external evidence, different factors outside of that book, which will help verify whether or not that book was written by the author, was passed down to us in a accurate form, and if the author was telling the truth, if he had the knowledge to tell the truth and reason to tell the truth. So we consider the manuscripts and then the internal and external evidence to determine whether or not the book is to be believed, if it's, if it's a serious work to be considered. Okay. So we're going to be looking at the manuscripts, trying to determine if we can see whether or not those are worthy of being reliable. Um, do we have any of the originals? There's no original writings from any of the early evangelists. So we're, we're going to need to go ahead in history a little bit, I think, right? Exactly. All the original autographs are, are lost, but we can still begin with the manuscripts, which we have. And that's what you do with any critical study of an ancient book. And you will observe that even though we have no original autographs, that there is a uniform in homogeneous tradition, considering all the texts of the Old and New Testament. So we look at the manuscripts we have, and we see this real uniform tradition and understanding of the ancient documents. So we're looking, we're talking about these these old manuscripts. Um, what is the oldest one that we have, or the, or the one that's furthest away from from us currently? So as we mentioned, the original autographs, the original books are all lost to us. They're no longer extant for any book of the Bible. But the oldest partial manuscripts of any text are found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. So the Dead Sea Scrolls are the oldest copies of the text of any biblical book. And they're made of papyrus and parchment, which are these ancient means of, of writing things down, of, of, of keeping recorded history. We'll give a quote from a book which we'll quote quite frequently. It's a Catholic introduction to the Bible, the Old Testament by John Bergsma and Brant Petrie. And a quote from them, of far greater interest to the textual scholars of the Old Testament are the Dead Sea Scrolls, the remains of an ancient Jewish library widely believed to belong to the group known as the Essenes, found in the caves at the northwest end of the Dead Sea in the late 1940s at a site called Kuram. The Dead Sea Scrolls provide our oldest copies of any portion of the scripture, including texts that date to the second century BC. Copies of all of the undisputed books of the Old Testament were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, except for Esther and Nehemiah. Fragmentary remains of about a thousand scrolls were found in the caves of Karam, of which 250 were copies of biblical books, almost all in Hebrew. And then we add to that that most of the Dead Sea Scrolls were small copies or fragments, but it's worthy to note that the, that the Isaiah scroll was found completely intact in these caves. So it was written over a thousand years before any known manuscript of Isaiah's. And this gives weighty evidence that the Bible was accurately preserved throughout the centuries. So this scroll was written down probably around 200 BC, maybe before. We know that Isaiah 
He composed his work around 700 BC. So it was written about 500 years after the original, preserved in this cave from sometime in the early first century, found in 1940. And it corresponds to the known books we have, have of Isaiah written, you know, a thousand years later. So it's very, very heavy evidence to show that the copyists, the scribes were very serious about preserving these ancient texts. Wow. So even though we don't have a full, you know, it's not like the Dead Sea Scrolls are just one complete copy of, of all the scriptures. It's, we can, we can piece together and say, all right, there's agreement in this, there's agreement in this. Exactly. As, as a dad, it's kind of like, you want to find out what happened when the kids misbehave. So you ask two or three of the kids and they all agree. Okay. Pretty good idea that that's actually what happened. We're kind of doing the same thing here. It's a horrible analogy, but. No, it works because that's what you're doing is you're taking all these fragments and comparing those fragments to the full text, which we have now and saying, okay, if all these fragments agree, that's heavy evidence that the whole text is, is accurate. And we note that about a third of the Hebrew biblical text found among the Dead Sea Scrolls correspond closely to the textual form of that Masoretic text, which we'll speak about later. 5% agree with the Greek Septuagint and 5% with the Samaritan Pentateuch. And there's a large number of more free and unique readings in the other Dead Sea Scrolls. But we do see the, the primary two text traditions we'll consider, the Septuagint and uh, the Masoretic texts, are confirmed by the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay. So um, am I jumping ahead a little bit by asking you to define what Masoretic text means, if I'm pronouncing that correctly? That's correct. Masoretic text. No, okay. that's, a, that's a good question. We have to, we have to establish that because it gives very heavy evidence to the to the veracity, the credibility of the modern scriptures that we have. And again, we'll quote the same book on the introduction to the Bible. The Masoretic text is the standard Hebrew form of the books of the Jewish Bible, the form used for chants and proclamations in traditional Jewish synagogues to this day. It takes its name from the Masoretes, a school of Jewish scribes that flourished between AD 700 and AD 1000. The Masoretes raised the reproduction of the Hebrew scriptures to a high art. Among other innovations, they devised a system of marking called points placed above and below the Hebrew consonants to indicate the vowel to be pronounced after the consonant. In this way, they were able for the first time to put down in writing the Jewish oral tradition of the pronunciation of the Hebrew scriptures. The Masoretes also introduced various quality control measures for the reproduction of manuscripts, such as painstakingly tabulating the exact number of words and letters in each biblical book so that scribes could check their work and be certain they had not missed a single letter. Subsequently, every newly written copy was care was carefully counted to verify its accuracy. So it's really incredible that the work they did to transmit that which they received. And that was the chief role of these Masoretic scribes. They wanted to preserve the text they had received. And this was an extraordinary accomplishment considering the challenge of copying these ancient languages. And of course, as with all of the different copyists, because of the challenge posed by the ancient languages, their oral traditions will influence them one way or another based off, for example, their belief in Christ or their lack of belief in Christ. There's going to be different things which oral tradition bring in, but um, we see it's quite a feat to accurately copy these ancient languages. Okay. Um, I just want to jump in on on one thing you said, Father, and and um, when you were saying that the scribes, the, the, the Masoretes, they were flourishing between AD 700 to 1000, not 8700. I just want to make sure for people who are listening that, that you under, they understand that you are saying AD 700, not 8700 years ago. Oh, yes. Sorry. AD 700 to AD 1000. Okay. Because I, I heard that and I was like, oh, that's a long time ago. Okay. No, no I right. apologize. Um, 700 no, 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 no to 300 okay. years. Um, so 
why was it difficult? So you're talking about the care, the great, the great care and consistency that they were trying to do in, in copying these manuscripts. Mm -hmm. Why, why was it so difficult? Why would, why couldn't you just copy from one to the other? So the original language of a large majority of the Old Testament books is Hebrew. The ancestral language of the people of Israel, it is a Semitic language with certain features such as trilateral word roots. That is words formed from a root consisting of three consonants. But two things make it difficult to accurately copy, especially without a strong oral tradition. One is the absence of true verbal tenses in Hebrew. And secondly, Hebrew has a paratactic syntax. That is the logical relationship between words and phrases and clauses are often simply implied rather than clearly indicating the hierarchical structure as the Greek does with a syntactical structure. So with the Hebrew, they put words and phrases next to each other. But there's not a logical flow in ideas in the Hebrew. Mm. So you have them next to each other, but that doesn't necessarily imply the relationship which we know thanks to the Greek syntactical structure. So the okay. very nature of the ancient Hebrew language reveals the essential role of sacred tradition in ancient Judaism. So because ancient Hebrew was written without vowels, that's another thing to keep in mind. So we have no vowels no true verbal sense, and we have a paratactic syntax. So those three things make it challenging. It was not possible just to interpret and copy the text accurately without first learning the oral tradition, which, which preserved that text um, throughout the centuries. And there is a theological significance in this, in as much as it demonstrates the reciprocal and complementary relationship that always is, existed between scripture and tradition. And this is true in ancient Judaism and in the Catholic faith today. There is a there's is a relationship between scripture and tradition. So the primary reason why it was difficult to preserve the text well was Hebrew, as these elements which make it difficult to just copy unless you know the oral tradition. The other languages were... Aramaic, which was the international language of the Near East from the 8th to 4th century, then Greek, which spread through the Mediterranean by the conquest of Alexander the Great in the 4th century. So Hebrew is, is difficult to copy without an oral tradition supporting it. Since this, in, since this is an apologetics series, uh, do you mind if I ask kind of a pointed devil's advocate question? And mm -hmm. that is, since this was so difficult to you know, translate the the written word with all of this different syntax, et cetera. How can we be sure that the that the copies were done properly? Is it because they they did the study of the oral traditions and by putting the written word and the oral traditions together, they were able to then accurately translate it into another language? Is that is that how they did it or so with the Masoretes, and we'll see that a bit later. So they had the manuscripts okay. of their time and that oral tradition of what it was saying. And then they could easily put in the vowels and have the context. But I think a strong argument, which we'll see later, is that such great agreement between the Masoretic school and the Vulgate. And so you have two text traditions, one by a Catholic scholar, another by Jewish scholars, which in their essence are an agreement. And so that'll be a strong argument that different religious traditions, we can say in a certain sense, come up with substantially um, accurate or substantially corresponding documents. Okay. And again, like our, like our previous example, if those two are, are in agreement, we have some decent certainty that the, the text that we have now is, is accurate. Yep. And it's going to make sense that when it comes to big questions, which we're not covering in this topic about the divinity of Christ, there's going to be differences, but then we stop, step back and say, of course, there's going to be differences because well, the Jews rejected that Christ was God, and we accept he was God. So there's going to, of course, be some disagreements. We're not saying they're word for word. But we're right. saying that when you do a critical study of the text, you can see that they're you know, substantially intact. Okay. So we've been talking about these. Uh, we, we've been talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls. We've been talking about all these little fragments. And, and just as an aside, I, I just saw an article a few days ago that the study of the Dead Sea Scrolls and some of these other scrolls that are, that are, that are found 
the, the scholarship is still ongoing. I think scientists yes. have discovered a way of, because uh, these scrolls are, they're scrolls, they're, they're in circles, right? And they can't undo them because they're just going to shatter. So they've exactly. developed ways to x-ray through the individual layers of the paper, papyrus, whatever, mm -hmm. and actually be able to read what's inside without damaging the scroll. It's fascinating how they're able to do that. And you just see that even today, the care which is had, the care which is had to know what these documents say. So based off the fact that so many different traditions have such interest in these documents, and that, again, there is substantial agreement with the Dead Sea Scrolls with each other. It's very heavy, very heavy evidence. Yeah. So, again, these are all the fragments. These are all the, the incomplete bits of, of Scripture. Um, from, where, from when can we find the oldest complete copy of the Jewish Bible, of the Old Testament? Okay. Yes. So, the oldest complete copy of the Hebrew Bible of the Old Testament which is accepted by the medieval Jews, is a codex. So by codex, we're speaking of a book which looks like books we have today. It's papers with stitches on one side, so very primitive binding, but it looks like a book that we have today. It's called the Leningrad Codex. So the Leningrad Codex. It's held at the National Library of Russia in St. Petersburg, formerly Leningrad. So these scrolls, these codexes are always named after the place they were found or the place they reside. And so this Leningrad Codex is a complete copy of the Masoretic text, which was written in Galilee around A.D. 1000, A.D. 1000. Okay. Again, devil's advocate hat on here, Father. A.D. Mm -hmm. 1000, that's... Uh what, almost 2,000 years, 1,800 years from the time of the originals, if my math is right, doesn't that bring in some doubt about the authenticity or the, the veracity of, of that text? Yes, 1,800, uh, you know, 1,300, depending on which books the Old Bible we're speaking about, but you're right, it's, it's a distance. But some important things here, all of the undisputed books of the Old Testament found in the current Bible, except the two which were absent in the caves of Karam. So we can look at the manuscript of 1000 and find nearly all of those books in some limited form in the Dead Sea Scrolls. One third of these biblical manuscripts in the Dead Sea Scrolls agree with the Masoretic text. And we have a full manuscript of the Old Testament from AD 1000, partial manuscripts written in the second or third century, found in 1940. And the fact there's such agreement between the two gives evidence that the rest of the Bible was likewise accurately passed on through copyists. Shows how serious the copyists were in accurately preserving the Bible. And okay. we know that the Masoretes began writing in AD 70. I mean, sorry. A.D. 700-ish. Okay. And so about 700 A.D., the Dead Sea Scrolls had to be you know, put in these caves before the destruction of Jerusalem, which is 70 A.D. So we do have about, you know, 900 years between the Dead Sea Scrolls being written and the school of the Masoretes accurately copying that which they received. Okay. So... Obviously, there were people who were copying the scriptures throughout that period. Do we know who they were, and, and do we know that they were doing it accurately? So, we don't know who they were by name necessarily, but we know that the Bible was considered a sacred book for the Catholics and the Jews. And there was always copyists preserving the Bible and we will see later on, we know who some of those people were, notably Jerome. But um, but there was always people preserving the Bible. And the masteries of their time, as we can of our time, can compare the manuscripts which they had with other manuscripts from a different text tradition and see, again, substantial agreement. And the two we'll focus on here is the Targums, they're called, and the Vulgate. 
So the Targums were Aramaic versions of the sacred books composed in the last centuries BC to the 5th century AD. And the context of these, these works, these manuscripts, was that starting in the 1st century BC, the, the scriptures were being read far outside of Palestine, and people did not know Hebrew. And a lot of people were speaking Aramaic. So in the context of the synagogue readings, very important to the Jews, there would be an interpreter who would dictate the Jewish scripture in Aramaic. And at first it was forbidden to write it down, but then soon after they started having these sessions of dictating the, the Hebrew scriptures in Aramaic, they began to write it down. So in the synagogue context, they were very serious about accuracy. But unfortunately, these targums were more of sermons. And therefore, they often paraphrased what scripture actually said, then added spiritual commentary. But still, as an outside source to the text tradition, which, which we have, you can still see, again, this substantial unity, the same topic, the, the same truths being taught. And so that's one way to verify the texts which were received in the 7th century. But the state of the text is chiefly evidenced by the Vulgate version made by St. Jerome at the end of the 4th century and the beginning of the 5th century. So he followed the best Hebrew manuscripts of his time, and his occasional remarks on how a word was spelt or read enables us to arrive at a sure judgment of the text of the 4th century. So Jerome is using the best Hebrew that he can find, and he's making comments and putting asterisks in, about how the text was written in his time. And so that's important because now we can read Jerome's Vulgate and we can see what the text was like that he was copying from. And here we see that the consonant text of the manuscripts used by the, by the Masoretes tallies in almost every respect with that of St. Jerome. So remember, the vowels were not originally written in the Hebrew, so there's going to be more, more room for error or disagreement with the vowels, but the consonants were written so we look at the consonant text of the Masoretic school and that of Jerome, and we see agreement in nearly every respect. Very powerful. Also, mm -hmm. we have Jerome in the Catholic tradition, and we have the Masoretes in the Jewish tradition. And still, we have this great agreement between the two text traditions. Okay, so all throughout, as we move through history, through all, all this time, the people that are that are copying, transcribing, Again, there may be some additions in terms of some spiritual reflections, etc., but the broad text is going to be very accurately transcribed across languages and, and cultures throughout time. Exactly. The subject matter, the the original sense is being has been accurately transmitted. There's going to be corruptions and whatnot, um, and we'll see later. The reason Jerome was commissioned to do his work was because of so many corruptions. So there are corruptions, but because people were so intent on having accurate scripture, they constantly came back to the best text they had so as to rework it and try to keep it as close as possible to the original. Okay. The Dead Sea Scrolls that we've been talking about, again, those that are dating between the 3rd and the 2nd century BC, somewhere around mm -hmm. there, um, were there any other, is there any other evidence out there that the Bible that we have today can be traced back to this time? Yes, the Greek Septuagint is very important. So okay. when translating the Old Testament, scholars also consult the readings of the Septuagint, an ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament. According to the ancient Jewish writing known as the Letter of Aristeas, the Septuagint translation was begun when the Hellenistic king of Alexandria in Egypt, Ptolemy II, brought Jewish scribes from Jerusalem to Alexandria in order to translate the books from the original Hebrew into Greek for the library at Alexandria. And this is a third century BC. This tradition is the origin of the name Septuagint, which in Greek just means 70. So after the 70 Jewish scholars were commissioned to make that translation, so King Ptolemy commissioned 70 Jewish scholars to make the translation. 
And it's said that he made them all work in separate areas and they came up with the same translation. That mm. can't be verified. But that King Ptolemy II commissioned a Greek translation of the Pentateuch for his library is plausible, fits the known data, and seems to be the basis for calling the Greek version of the Old Testament the Septuagint. The translation of the Pentateuch was the first official translation to Greek and dates to about 250 BC, an authoritative translation of the whole Old Testament into Greek. So we do have the Septuagint, which is very weighty. And, and we consider that the, um, the ancient world considered it to be virtually inspired. Even the Jewish scholar um, Josephus, the historian, and Philo, the philosopher, regarded it as virtually inspired. St. Augustine likewise considered it as virtually inspired. And later we'll see a big battle between St. Augustine and St. Jerome, because St. Jerome is going back to the original Hebrew to make his new translation. And St. Augustine says, we have the Septuagint, which is so authoritative, we shouldn't ever move away from that. And we take note that the majority of the New Testament quotations, so when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, most of those quotations are taken from the Septuagint. So we see that the apostles and the sacred authors of the New Testament were using the Septuagint version of the Old Testament. And for a great part of humanity, the Septuagint was the only form of the Old Testament which they knew because of the spread of, of Greek throughout the civilized world at the time. So the Septuagint is very, very important and is an authoritative source for the scriptures. A little bit off topic, but just a question that popped into my mind. Why would it be that the uh, King King Ptolemy in Egypt, even though he was Greek, um, why were they interested in Jewish texts? Were they were they practicing Jews or were they just doing it as a matter of scholarship? There were Jews across the whole world and then in diaspora. So it was very typical. But in many cases, it was just scholarship. These books were really considered to be sacred. There was a longstanding understanding of how important they were. So having them in this great library, Alexandria, is a very important thing. Even if you don't agree with some ancient book or tradition, you still very well want to have it in a scholarly context. So. Sure. Okay. So for the Septuagint, do we have the original um, Septuagint, this you know, that was all collected at about 250 BC. Uh, Library of Alexandria no. didn't have a very good ending, so I'm presuming no. not. Exactly. The tragic ending of the library destroyed, you know, of course, many ancient and important works. So what we do have is from the 4th century AD. So by the 4th century AD, the church had the resources to produce codices, which are books, not just scrolls. And she did this for the entire Septuagint Bible for the use in her cathedrals or major churches. So we see the church preserving the Septuagint in Greek for the liturgy. And then we know that Constantine ordered Eusebius to have 50 manuscripts of the Bible made on vellum, which is a leather, for the uses in the churches in the empire. So our oldest manuscripts of the Septuagint date to the 4th century. Everything before the 4th century are going to be fragments. Okay. So our so, oldest complete manuscript of the entire Bible comes from the 4th century, and that is the Septuagint plus the Greek New Testament. Okay. Now, th this they wouldn't have been able to, you know, when Constantine ordered this to be done, he wouldn't have been able to look at the original Septuagint because that was destroyed. But I'm presuming that between, you know, 250 and, and the fourth century that there were copies of this made and then transmitted around. So then they were able to recollect it all. Is that kind of how it came about? Exactly. So if okay. you consider the fact that the early church, even before Constantine was using the Septuagint, and we'll see examples later of how serious the early Christians were about not changing their scripture. So the early church was already using it. We already mentioned how the historian Josephus and the philosopher Philo consider them sacred texts. So there was abundant evidence that they would have been preserved from 250 BC 
350 AD, based off how important they were okay. to the Jews and the Christians. Got it. Um, what about, so then where's the, the, the oldest one then you said is, is ranging from a, it's, it's from about the fourth century uh, AD. Yes. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. The most important, and like we mentioned earlier, these manuscripts or codices are named after the place they were found or where they reside. So one of the most important is the Vaticanus. It's kept at the Vatican in the museum, in the archives. It's the best manuscript of the complete Greek Bible. The Old Testament Septuagint stored in the Vatican libraries. And it also has the New Testament in Greek. It dates to the 4th century AD. So very likely one of these copies made by Constantine, but if not made by him, made by somebody. So sometime in the 300s is, is when it's dated. Then we have the Alexandrinus, also an excellent Greek Bible from Alexandria. It does contain some non-canonical books, which is a question for other podcasts, but it dates from the 400s, so the 5th century. It's now stored in the British Library. Then we also have the Sinaiticus, which is another Septuagint Old Testament, Greek New Testament. It was found in the 19th century in St. Catherine's Monastery at the base of Mount Sinai and now resides in the British Library. Likewise, dates to the 4th century. It contains the entire New Testament and much of the Old Testament. So we can wow. go back to the 4th century and have manuscripts of the Septuagint and the New Testament, which is wow. goes back quite a long ways. And as we'll see later, it's a stronger text tradition than any other historical work from that time. Absolutely. Um, could we, we mentioned the Vulgate a little bit before and, and the work of St. Jerome basically taking all this and, and collecting it yes. into a, a Latin translation. Um, can we speak a little bit more, Father, about the Vulgate and, and its importance? Yes, it's really of the utmost importance. So the Bible was first translated from the Greek to the Latin, probably in the middle of the second century. So 150, somewhere in there. We don't have exact timeline there. It was called the Atala. And so the original Septuagint translated to Latin for the for the Roman Empire. But due to inexperienced copyists and carelessness, whatever the reason, those texts were quickly corrupted. So much so that Jerome stated that there were as many versions as copies. And that was used in the early liturgy in the church. So Pope Damascus, with his great care to preserve the word of God, he asked Jerome to revise the Psalms and the New Testament and to bring them back into agreement with the Septuagint, because the Septuagint was considered a very authoritative copy of the scripture. Even the apostles and New Testament authors would quote the Septuagint. The reason the Pope insisted on doing the Psalms in the New Testament was because of the place of prominence they played in the liturgy. Mm -hmm. Keep in mind, when the church was canonizing the scriptures, as is a different topic, she was basically saying these are the scriptures worthy of being read and prayed in liturgical setting. Mm -hmm. So as the Psalms and New Testament have a place of privilege in the liturgy, you can see why the Pope very much wanted to ensure that we had accurate scriptures for the liturgy. And so Jerome set about doing this. He finished the work of the Psalms and the New Testament, and his work was immediately adopted into the Roman liturgy and called the Roman Psalter. In spite of the fact that Rome accepted the new translation of Jerome, the people were reluctant since they had many of the old Latin versions memorized by heart. So, again, there's evidence that throughout time, whether it be the Jewish tradition of the Old Testament or the Catholic tradition of the New Testament, that the faithful in the synagogues or the churches knew their scripture well. You know, they didn't have an iPhone and just listen to it or read off the iPhone. They, they listened to it in a liturgical setting. They memorized it. They loved it. And they didn't want to right. see it change. So the early Christians had a hard time with, with Jerome's new translation. And Jerome himself wasn't satisfied with his first edition. He wasn't rigorous enough in his mind. So then in 385, he went to live in a cave in Bethlehem, 
to study scripture and perfect his work. Then he worked on a second edition of the Psalms in the New Testament, and he based this version to a great extent off the Hexapla of Origen, which at that time was preserved in the library of Caesarea. And Hexapla is important because it means, first of all, sixfold. So Origen took different versions of the Hebrew Bible and the Greek Bible and the Septuagint, and he put six basically columns in the way he could with scrolls. And he really did some serious critical analysis of the different texts to preserve the original meaning, a word-for-word comparison of six different versions of the Bible. And Jerome had access to this. Unfortunately, this book has been destroyed, so we have little fragments, so we know it existed, we have fragments. But the fact that Jerome could work from such a document shows that he had access to things which are lost today, which gives him even greater credibility as a scripture scholar. That was his second version, but he wasn't content with that because Origen had many problems, as Jerome himself points out. And therefore, Jerome went to find the oldest, best manuscripts he could at his time to translate the entire Bible into Latin from the original Hebrew. And this, in fact, was very controversial, in fact. And you can read the letters between St. Jerome and St. Augustine on this topic. We'll just give a few a few lines from one of the letters just to show how serious the bishops and the faithful were about having a credible and accurate translation of the Bible. I'll quote St. Augustine. A certain bishop, one of our brethren, came upon a word in the book of the prophet Jonah, of which you have given a very different rendering from that which had been of old familiar to the senses and memory of all the worshipers and had been chanted for so many generations in the church. Thereupon arose such a tumult in the congregation, especially among the Greeks, correcting what had been read and denouncing the translation as false, that the bishop was compelled to ask the testimony of the Jewish residents. The man, the bishop, was compelled to correct your version in that passage as if it had been falsely translated, as he desired not to be left without a congregation, a calamity which he narrowly escaped. So that's a letter which St. Augustine wrote to St. Jerome, and in the other letters, which you can read, he was very critical. Why are you going back to the original Hebrew when the Septuagint is so established, so respected, and so true? But then Jerome points out in his responses that, you know, we have to go back to the best documents we have and then give the most accurate translation we can. So Jerome very much defended his work, which St. Augustine didn't like. Finally, St. Augustine wrote to him and said, just send me the best translation of the Septuagint that I can get. He didn't want the, the new translation of Jerome. But the word that causes great tumult, this great controversy, was what kind of plant was, was referenced in the book of Jonah, chapter four, 4, verse 6, when it was said, so the Lord appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah. And scholars still don't know what kind of plant was indicated in the original. But the fact that early Christians... Huh. We're so used to one type of plant, one word, that they caused this huge rebellion almost because St. Jerome changed that one word. is strong evidence that the people were not going to let the scripture be changed very easily. Wow, that's fascinating. Uh, liturgy wars, nothing new. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, yes, you see. And even today, if we read a version of the scripture from the pulpit, which is heterodox, the people know right yeah. away and they're very upset. Uh, And we can finish a little note on St. Jerome is, so he translated most of the biblical books directly from the Hebrew, and he did his best to procure the most complete copies he could. On one hand, this makes his translation very worthy of consultation as an important witness to the ancient manuscripts available to him in his day. So basically going to Jerome tells us the state of the manuscripts at his time because of how how much work he did to accurately translate them. So that's very important. On the other hand, 
as far as we can tell, the Hebrew text used by St. Jerome tends, by and large, to resemble closely the Hebrew of the Masoretic text we now possess. So again, as we mentioned, two different text traditions, the Masoretes, the Masoretic text, and Jerome. But the evidence indicates that they were working from the same manuscripts. For this reason, when there is some doubt about the meaning in the Masoretic text, it doesn't do us much good to go to Jerome because the same doubt is usually in Jerome because there mm -hmm. seems to be working from the same documents. So if you have both traditions working from the same documents, it gives strong evidence that they both had good, accurate manuscripts of their time. And we see the sense of the people help preserve the accuracy of the manuscripts as well. Okay. Um, so St. Jerome is, is writing the Vulgate or his third edition. He, he reminds me of almost every author who I know, mm -hmm. never satisfied, always making uh, changes up until the last second before it's published. Exactly. Um, but do we have that original version written in the hand of St. Jerome? Or no. if we don't, no, how far back can we go? So we have about 8,000 manuscripts of the Vulgate still in existence, oh, wow. which is good. But the oldest manuscript is the Codex Amiatinus from the 8th century, so 700s. But most of the others are from the 12th century. That's a complete manuscript. We have fragments going back further. But as far as complete manuscript, it is the 8th century. Okay. But again, we do some comparisons. Jerome is using the Hebrew manuscripts of his time, the Masoretes of their time. They're after Jerome. There is great agreement between the two. And when we have doubt what one was saying, there's equal obscurity in the other, which indicates they're probably using the same manuscripts. And so okay. we don't have Jerome's original, but we have pieces and parts of the Vulgate. So just like with the Dead Sea Scrolls, you can take those pieces and compare them to the full script we have today. So we can take pieces of the old Latin manuscripts and compare them to the Vulgate we have today. So the oldest Latin manuscript or the oldest manuscripts of the New Testament we have are second century, middle of the uh, about 170 or so. But then after Jerome, we have, you know, smaller pieces of the Vulgate still existing, but no full copies. Okay. And I'm sure that there's all sorts of scholarship still ongoing to this day mm -hmm. where scriptural scholars are making sure that there's harmony in, in all of these different various manuscripts, right? Yes, it's a constant discipline, and there's still people today looking for, you know, manuscripts, trying to uncover manuscripts and mm -hmm. trying to read them more accurately. So it is an ongoing discipline. Okay. Um, so there is definitely agreement between these manuscripts, all of these all of these scriptural scholars. Um, are there any who have done some exceptional work that you want to talk about? Or Yes, two fairly modern scholars, modern compared to those we've quoted so far. One is Benjamin Kennicott, a biblical scholar from England in the 18th century. He compared 600 manuscripts of the Old Testament, and he found them to be in great harmony. And we also have Father de Rossi. He added considerably to this study. He was a priest in Italy in the 18th century. He collected 1,500 Hebrew manuscripts in Parma. He was a professor of scripture. And um, he shows the uniformity between 1,500 Hebrew manuscripts. So two, you know, eminent scripture scholars who, who show that the manuscripts we have, even though in some cases they're quite distant from the original autograph, have this harmonious text tradition. So it's obvious that this striking uniformity between these differing Old Testament manuscripts and their harmony with the Dead Sea Scrolls cannot be due to chance. It is unique in the history of text tradition and all the more remarkable as the imperfect Hebrew system of writing could not but occasion many errors and slips. So when we consider how difficult it was to accurately copy Hebrew and how harmonious all the copies are, which is evident by, by much testimony and evidence, it's clear that it's unique in, in text tradition. 
And the fact is even more striking when you consider the New Testament. The New Testament is a bit different. We have New Testament manuscripts written not much more than 300 years after the original composition. And yet we find numerous differences, though but few are important. So the textual variants of the manuscripts of the New Testament are limited to insignificant differences of vowels and rarely some consonants. And this was even admitted by Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman is famous for writing books against Christianity. He was a Christian who, scandalized by evil in the world, became an agnostic and attacks Christianity. But he even wrote that the essential Christian belief is not affected by the textual variance of the manuscript tradition in the New Testament. So even mm-hmm. somebody who abandoned Christianity and is opposed to it, he admits it was in a, I think, an appendix to his book, so it wasn't something advertised too strongly, but he admitted that all the different variations in the New Testament do not affect the substance of the doctrines of, the New, of Christianity. And then Craig Bloomberg, a New Testament scholar, stated only about a tenth of 1% of the variations are interesting enough even to make a footnote in most English translations. So you note that the New Testament has more variations than the Old Testament. And part of that reason is we have just so many manuscripts of the New Testament. Mm -hmm. But very few are of any significance. And even the enemies of Christianity admit that these differences in the New Testament don't affect the doctrine. And then Craig Bloomberg notes that it's too bad that Bart Ehrman does not make the admission that the the variations in manuscripts don't affect Christian doctrine in a in a um, more obvious place rather than an appendix to his book after he spent the book criticizing Christianity. So we just yeah. see some more evidence there that it's really unique that the Old Testament has such a strong text tradition, even stronger than the New Testament in a certain way. But the New Testament, the variations still don't affect the doctrine of Christianity. Right. There's nothing in there that, that says that um, our Lord got married or, you know, something crazy like that. There's there's no variations of that nature. It's more just tiny details, small words and phrases here and there. Exactly. Now, of okay. course, a whole different topic would be text intentionally corrupted to support heresy, things like that. Right. But as far as authentic manuscripts within the, the tradition of just copying what was received, there's no such things. Correct. Okay. So we've been talking about, uh, and you've mentioned in the past, this this complete manuscript of the New Testament that mm-hmm. we have from the 4th century. Um, but are there any fragments or bits and pieces of the New Testament that date even earlier than that? Yes, there's many. There's many fragments from the 2nd and 3rd century, which is, in, which is within one century of the lost autographs. The earliest fragment which I found was St. John's Gospel on papyrus, which is dated to AD 150, which is oh, wow. probably 70 some years after he wrote the gospel. And it's a fragment from the um, right before the passion of Christ. So, yes, there's lots of fragments like this. And again, you take all these fragments, you collect them, you compare them to the full manuscripts, and you see this, this that they confirm one another, which is very strong evidence. So in summary, there are thousands more New Testament Greek manuscripts than any other ancient writing. Mm. And there's great internal consistency. I quote one source which said that of the New Testament manuscripts, there's 99.5% textual purity, which means all the variations are a question of grammar and vowels, maybe some syntax, but nothing which affects our core beliefs. In addition, there are over 19,000 copies in the Syriac, Latin, Coptic, and Aramaic languages. So the total supporting New Testament manuscripts is over 24,000. Of course, many are fragments, span over some centuries, but immense evidence of both the Old and the New Testament that it's a credible book. Wow. There are a lot of copies, to put it mildly, of the New Testament. Uh, yes. floating around. You just mentioned 19,000 copies in this. And, and, yeah, and again, some of those 000. are little pieces, but yep. Right. Um, 
Is there any other book, any other secular ancient work, the works of Homer or Josephus's histories or anything like that? Are there any other ancient books that compare in, in volume and, and being so carefully transcribed? Not in volume, no. And not even in chain of custody, I would say, as far as having little pieces throughout the centuries, and which is an important element that with the scripture, we can go back and find at least little pieces throughout all the centuries. That's not the same for many other texts. And I'll consider a, a few, a few different works here, which are important. So the history of the Greek historian Herodotus, who is called the father of history. So very important history of Greece and the wars between Persia and Greece. And again, the father of history sometime in the fifth century BC. And the oldest fragment we have from his histories is the first century AD. So 500 years after they were composed. But the earliest complete copy is the 10th century AD, which is the same time as the Codex of Leningrad, 1400 years after it was composed and not nearly as many pieces in between. So we see that we take his history very seriously. Scholars study it to understand Greece and the war between the Persians and the Greeks. But there's a much weaker history of preserving the text. We know it was preserved because people care about history. But the same evidence is not there. Tacitus, so about 100 AD, a great Roman historian who does speak about Christ and Pontius Pilate. He's an important historian. So he's writing in the in around 100 AD. And the first copies we have of his histories of Rome, the annals, is 1000 AD. So the same as the first complete copy of the Jewish Bible but much after the copies we have of the Septuagint, remember, we have the full Bible from the 4th century AD, mm-hmm. which includes the Old Testament from the Septuagint, which was about 250 BC, and all the New Testament books, which were written in the 1st century. So we see that the Septuagint and the Greek copies we have, which still exist, are much more recent, much closer to the original documents than Tacitus or Herodotus. And Homer, you mentioned Homer, the Greek Greek poet. We know that he was composing his works in the 9th century BC. And there is debate on how much he composed through oral composition and how much was written down. But that doesn't matter because he's the author either way, just like the Old Testament. It could have been composed through oral composition and transcribed by somebody else. But both the Iliad and the Odyssey were composed about the 9th century BC. And there are a few fragments of the Iliad that can be dated within 500 years of the time. The first complete copy of the Iliad comes from a manuscript dated 10th century, same as the Leningrad Codex. The first complete copy of the Iliad is from 1800 years after it was originally composed. The first fragments of the Odyssey was found on clay tablets in Greece, 3rd century AD. So we see, again, it's not uncommon in the history of of manuscripts to have these long gaps in time. And we trust the people to a great extent are accurately transcribing that which they received because they considered Homer a great master, Tacitus a great master. Well, how much more so with the Jews and Catholics who considered that and believe rightfully that God is the author of scripture. So not only do we have more manuscripts, multiple sources, all confirming one another, but we also have that underlying knowledge that the Jews and the Christians consider God to be the author of the sacred books. And therefore a very serious thing if they intentionally corrupt the book. Yeah. We've been talking for the last Oh, just about an hour or so about the about the credibility just based on lineage and based on provenance of you know of the texts. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing that I always find fascinating um, is that external evidence, archaeological evidence, which archaeology yes. as a thing didn't even really start until about the eighteen hundreds. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot of archaeological evidence that proves things that were in the scripture that were previously unknown before these archaeological discoveries. Is that right? 
Exactly. And there's two archaeologists which really are really important, I think, in this discussion. The first is William Albright. So he became known to the public in 1948 for his role in authenticating the Dead Sea Scrolls. But he made his scholarly reputation as a leading theorist and practitioner in biblical archaeology. So looking at the Bible, looking at archaeology, and seeing what parts of the Bible can be authenticated by archaeological discoveries. So we'll quote him now. The spades of the archaeologists have uncovered innumerable facts that confirm the scripture. More than 25,000 sites have been discovered that pertain to the Bible. Records of tens of thousands of individuals and events have been found. The most recent and continuing testimony of archaeology, like all such testimony that has gone before, is definitely and uniformly favorable to the scripture at its face value, rather than to the scripture as reconstructed by critics. So Dr. William Albright says, there can be no doubt that archaeology has confirmed the substantial historicity of the Old Testament tradition. So a very powerful testimony when you see the evidence he presents that archaeology supports the history recounted in the Old Testament. And speaking of archaeology, the other archaeologist worthy of mention is Sir William Ramsay. He actually set out to discredit Luke, of course, the New Testament evangelist, who authored the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. He set out to disprove these documents to show that Luke was not a true historian and you know, the scriptures were fables or inventions. And after 20 years of investigation, that's a pretty serious investigation, going throughout the ancient world where St. Luke had recorded events, he converted to Christianity. And he stated that Luke should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. You may press the words of Luke in a degree beyond any other historian's, and they stand against the keenest scrutiny and the hardest treatment. So you look at the Acts of the Apostles, you look at the Gospel of Luke, you go to the places, and you see that you can press his words against the, the reality, the history, and they're found accurate, which means he knew these places, and he accurately recorded that which he saw. So we look at the wow. manuscript evidence, it's, it's profound. Archaeological evidence, it likewise supports that the authors of the scriptures knew what they were talking about and were telling the truth. Wow. That is really fascinating. And I, I, I love this topic so much. Um, Good. This isn't, this isn't in the notes, Father, and so we can cut this mm -hmm. out if you want or if you don't want to chat about it. Okay. Um, the popular Bible that is used by most traditional Catholics is the Douay Rheims Bible. Mm -hmm. That is an English translation, and that comes directly from the Latin Vulgate. Is that correct? Yes, English translation of the Vulgate, yes. Okay. Um, I just picked up a copy also of the the Knox Bible, uh, named mm -hmm. for Father Knox. Um, and I thought it was interesting because he did, again, a translation from the Vulgate, but he also went back to some of the Hebrew texts, and he went back yes. to some of the Greek texts. He was a scholar in those languages. And exactly. he did some translations, not to make things different, obviously, but to help clarify yes. even from the Vulgate as well. So, And that was just... 50 years ago, 60 years ago, he did that. Exactly. So there's all this, all of this work that's still being done, very good work that's still being done. Yeah. No, Monsignor Knox did a wonderful job. And he also writes in English, which is more accessible than the Dewey Rames. Dewey Rames yes. was, you know, written in a much older English. So it's difficult for people. And Monsignor Knox was a Catholic with a great sense of the faith, a great knowledge of the ancient languages. And of course, he's going to be limited by the manuscripts he can find because sure. he doesn't have the manuscripts. He did not have the manuscripts Jerome had, but he still was able to bring much shed much light on the scripture by using the Vulgate and other sources. All right. Well, Father, thank you so much for uh, for putting together this um this talk for us and we're going to upload your notes as well. And you have okay. an incredible amount of footnotes in here as well. So if people want to uh, dive in a little bit more, um, you mentioned also a book uh, by John Bergsman and Brant 
Petrie, the Catholic introduction to the Bible. Is that something you'd recommend people yes, check I out? Highly and, recommend and, it. and I probably forgot okay. to quote it as much as I should have. So there are many paragraphs which I took from that book. So, you know, it's really worth reading. It's, it's, it's scholarly. It's a bit heavy in places, but you could at least start with the case for Jesus by the same author. It's an excellent okay. introduction into the New Testament by the same author, which is very good. And it helps us show through internal and external evidence that the New Testament is written by the sacred authors, is worthy of belief, and that Christ claimed to be God in the, in the um, Gospels. So that's a very good book okay. as well. Okay, very good. Well, I'm I'm going to put some notes um, in in the uh, text that people can download from sspxpodcast.com. Uh, we may put it in the show notes as well, but just download the text that okay. Father's put together, and there's some links there for those. But um, again, Father, thank you so much. It was fascinating and and helps us to uh, appreciate the Bible even more than than we already do. Great. Well, my pleasure. Thank you. All right. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Apologetic Series on the SSPX Podcast and on our YouTube page. Please consider subscribing to the YouTube account and the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are found. And please consider leaving a rating or a review on this podcast. This will help to make sure more people can find this podcast and discover the beauty and the truth of traditional Catholicism. Until next time, thank you for joining us, and God bless you.